You're listening to Evidence-Based IHP, the podcast that draws connections from research to practice. Hey listeners, welcome to our newest episode. We have a few announcements to share before we jump into the interview portion. First, we are running a survey and we would love to get your feedback on the podcast. You'll find the link to the survey in the show notes. Everyone who answers the survey will be eligible for a drawing for a $25 Amazon gift certificate. The survey is going to run for a few months and then we will do the drawing in early 2022 and announce the winner in a future episode. Next, Rachel has some good news to share. Rachel? Thanks, Amanda. My good news is that I graduated at the end of August and recently began working at a pediatric private practice in Massachusetts for my clinical fellowship. I am still helping with research in the Beam Lab and will also be staying connected to the IHP as an alum. So Amanda, what's new with you? Well, Rachel, I recently started a new job. I'm now a librarian for the Library and Information Resources Network, aka LEARN, an international academic library consortium, which means that sadly, I am no longer officially part of the Bellic Library, but listeners don't despair. Despite these recent transitions for Rachel and I, we and our amazing producer, Selena, will be finishing up season one of Evidence-Based IHP. We still have several amazing episodes to release and important student research to highlight. I'm really excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. Amanda, can you tell our listeners about the upcoming interview? This episode features Amy Lamont, a 2021 graduate of the entry-level occupational therapy doctoral program. She talks to us about her capstone research project, which is a requirement of the OCD program at IHP. The study sought to understand the impact of COVID-19 on occupational therapists whose service delivery switched abruptly from in-person to telehealth, presenting new diverse challenges for clients who have visual impairments. And we recently found out that Amy's work was published in the journal World Federation of Occupational Therapists Bulletin. There is a link in the show notes to Amy's article. Congrats, Amy, on your publication and graduation. It is truly exciting news for Amy and her research team at the Institute. In addition to all of the OTs and other health professionals working with this population who will benefit from this work. All right, listeners, here's our interview with Amy Lamont, OTD. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Yeah, it's great to see you guys again. We are very excited to have you here. When I was thinking about creating this podcast, you were the very first student who came to mind about the part, about who I wanted to talk to and interview on this podcast. So I'm very appreciative that you were able to make time for us. I thought we would just start off with you introducing yourself, tell our listen- listeners a little bit about you and, um, and what you do. Sure. I'm a third year occupational therapy student. I'm on my second clinical right now at Spalding Rehab, actually on the brain injury floor. But I know we're here to talk about the research portion, which I did over the summer. And so speaking of your project, um, there are a few things I kind of want our listeners to know what they are before we start talking, because we will be talking about them so much. And depending on who they are, I mean, I don't know what, what these terms are. So could you tell our listeners what an ADE is? So ADE stands for Advanced Doctoral Experience. And so in the OT program at the IHP, typically pre-COVID world, um, we would do our two, in our last year, we do our two full-time clinicals and then um, a full research portion, which is a full, full semester. And previous to that research, we have three research courses, which we kind of build up to that. It's sort of what sets apart um, the doctoral program in comparison to a master's program. 
Amy, how much choice and like agency do you have in choosing your research topic? In our second year, um, all the professors come in and kind of present their main focuses um, and explain what sort of the research would be on. For example, my mentor, her specialty is low vision. And so we got to rank our professors in interest of what we would like, who we would like to work with. And then we got one of our professors really kind of maps out um, who we'd rely on with and who it were kind of, I don't know, somehow she matches us with a mentor. And so it's a half long way to re like roundabout you know, 50-50. So you knew you were doing something with low vision, but you don't necessarily know what it is until the project actually starts up. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. And so can you tell everyone what what the term low vision means? I think people might think it's one thing. And what I've learned from working with you and other students who had the same mentor is that it's actually a little bit bigger than what I thought it was. I agree. I think it kind of is a general term for any sort of vision impairment that's greater than simply needing um, glasses. And it can be arranged all the way to total blindness. So can you give us um, a brief description of the study that you did for your ADE and tell us what you were hoping to learn from it? I interviewed occupational therapists that use telehealth. They were previously working with patients in person and switched to telehealth due to COVID. So I interviewed nine occupational therapists. Half were working with in the school system previously and half were previously working in home care. Um, so we're primarily with older adults. The real thing I wanted to get out of it was really what their experience was like um, as a qualitative study. So what the experience was like um, using telehealth during COVID, specifically with patients with low vision. And what would you say the major takeaways were from the findings? I think we sort of went into it assuming that the hardest part of it um, would be the visual impairment since it's telehealth and the clients couldn't, you know, see the computer, but actually it was a multitude of factors and it was more so access. So that was access to a caregiver being able to help, access to resources um, that the clients could use in their home and just outside stressors due to the pandemic. And so the visual impairments was a piece of it, but it wasn't the main piece. And I think that was surprising for us. Did you always know that you were going to be doing a project related to COVID or did you sort of have to pivot once um, the pandemic hit? Pivot. <laughs> so I actually didn't plan to do my research over the summer. Um, when my clinical was canceled, they then said I could take time off or jump into a research project. And so I was talking to an alumni who works at the Perkins School for the Blind and about what she was currently doing. And it was a switch to telehealth. Um, and she was talking about all these things that she like wished there was some research on. She wished she would like to know what other um, OTs were doing that had to switch to telehealth. And I was like, okay, let's, let's do research on it. <laughs> There's a project. So you were just like excited to do this. Yeah, we had to jump into something. I was like, she wants, like, there was that gap. Like, I feel like that's kind of how qualitative research seems to happen. Like there's a gap, some, there's a question. And then that's, you know, leads to the project. In your findings, were there any differences between, let's say, the the younger population, the kids at Perkins, um, when compared with the older adults in the uh, residential care settings? Yeah, so that was another main takeaway, actually. Whether it was kids, children with um, disabilities, and that's why they weren't able to log on to the, um, like, Zoom or whatever platform, or older adults who aren't typically um, super tech savvy, that was a 
primary reason of why like a caregiver or parent or someone was really needed to set up Zoom and that was a challenge. But a separate main takeaway is previous to COVID working in the home, they already were able to see their client's home and that wasn't new to them. And just now they aren't able to actually be hands-on. And so it was a really downfall to the people that were previously in home care with older adults that like for low vision, one um, thing is making home modifications. And so adapting someone's light um, in their house, you can't do that over Zoom. You can't, I can't tell her <laughs> how the lighting is in your, in your room, Rachel. On the flip side, when the OTs were previously working in the school systems, now they could also see into their, um, the kids' home settings. And so they could either make the home adaptations or make sure that whatever they were working on would be able to carry over into the home. That's interesting how it would affect those two populations differently just by virtue of the setting where the healthcare is happening. I, I think that sometimes when we have like research questions or these questions that are happening in our clinical situations, setting doesn't always get considered as important right away. Um, and so that's a really good example of how setting is with such a big influence on the situation for everyone involved. Yes. And I know in our foundations course, we talk about all the different frameworks and I'm like, oh, how much is this really applicable? Uh, super applicable because one framework that we use is called EHP, which is the environment, um, talks about the environment so much. Um, and so that was like really what drove this research project. Can you talk a little more about what EHP stands for and kind of like the idea behind that? Okay, so EHP is the Ecology of Human Performance Framework. Um, and it really talks about how a person can carry out their occupations depending on the setting or their context. Um, so a person's context can be um, their physical, social, or cultural context. So the big change here, the um, environment, so how they were previously, whether in the home setting or the school setting, and now the context changing to Zoom or Google Classroom or however they were then carrying out their sessions. Um, and the temporal, in quotes, um, change meaning in COVID, so whether it was more stress, now, you know, again, the sessions are carried at the person's home, and so what resources do they have access to, and all those different challenges, either good or bad. It sounds like a very complex situation to have to kind of wade through as a researcher and figure out what to ask about. It seems like there's a lot of different factors, kind of, that some are similar and some are very different, depending on the person and the situation. COVID in 2020 added factors to everything. So this is just one of them. <laughs> one of the things I really like about qualitative research too, is that it doesn't try to eliminate the researcher from the study as like a, an influence on the study. So you think that like, mm -hmm. you're almost going through the same thing that all of your participants were going through where your environment was up upended. You suddenly were having to do everything from home. Do you feel like that your situation, did it influence the project in any way or, or, or the things that you, the decisions that you made along the way? Oh, that's such a good point. I mean, they would talk about how Zoom would freeze during their sessions and then like my Zoom would freeze, like my internet would disconnect during the interviews because I conducted the interviews, of course, over Zoom too. I mean, I think a huge part of what wasn't originally considered, you know, just not thinking about low vision was the primary thing, but really everyone, you know, everyone during 2020 had that additional stress. And so that's what all of the people that I interviewed um, really took that into consideration was their 
patients or clients' um, stress levels, their family stress levels, and like how much they still want to participate in OT um, and what they were still wanting to do. And like, you know, that's also what I consider. I was like, thank you so much for taking your time out to do this interview when you do, did not need to, whatever time works, like just being really, everyone was really flexible. But I think they were also really willing to because there's so much to learn out of COVID um, and telehealth is going to be in the future in one way or another. So everyone is still really willing to participate, which was really nice. There was a lot of goodwill in those early days where everybody wanted to help everyone out. And it's, I think it's awesome that you were able to do your projects at a time when people were still feeling that way and not how we are feeling a year later, which is we are all sick of Zoom <laughs> and also this pandemic and can everything, please just go back to normal already. Thank you. <laughs> you worded that perfectly. Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, what were some of the things that these clinicians um, found from this experience? Were there any um, solutions or ideas that kind of came out of this on how to adapt and how to solve those problems, such as, you know, um, home modification or things like that when you aren't able to go into the home or be as hands-on? I mean, the one thing that every single person said was telehealth should be a way of the future in some form or another, whether it's mostly in conjunction with in-person therapy. Um, So maybe in between, if the person has a question for some sort of way, but in regards to the home modifications, yeah, people got creative. So right now, I mean, everyone's kind of learned, you know, blank backgrounds, but for low vision, one thing I thought was interesting was even paying attention to what they wore. So if they had lighter skin, making sure they had um, dark rimmed glasses or plain uh, colored clothing. I think it's just general tips that, you know, it's good to do for everyone, but not too many hand gestures to be distracting. But one thing some students, when they were um, previously in the school setting, had said some people with low vision will use screen readers. And so that's not, I don't think it was available in Google Classroom quite yet. I'm not sure if it is now, but just having them send documents separately in a Word doc so they can use a screen reader and then, but also put it in Google Classroom so they can be in two different places. But yeah, just being creative. And I mean, a lot of times clients know best. So asking them what they'd like, you know, prefer to use. It's almost like they all had to become digital accessibility experts within a matter of a few days in order to be able to continue to do their work. So I'm sure they learned a lot about how to make a Word doc accessible, for instance. Perhaps to so many people. (laughs) Yeah. What you said just a couple minutes ago about telehealth being the future, that's the sense that I keep getting from, you know, pretty much all the fields as well. There's so much potential there with being able to reach clients who, you know, might have difficulty getting to a therapy location or who maybe wouldn't come for a follow-up at all if this wasn't an option. What are, what is your hope for the use of telehealth in the future? How would you like to see it evolve? Where do you think improvements can be made? You know, I do think the takeaway is kind of still in conjunction because nothing will compare to in-person therapy, but yeah, it's such an amazing follow-up that like, you know, say there's a specialist in one part of the country and like someone in a rural area really needs, you know, especially here in Boston, if like this specialist could connect with someone in a different part of the country, just super quickly, right? Like, that's amazing that we can do that. But I think as far as adaptations, just making sure everything is really accessible. So whether you can use touch screen, even in Zoom, like I know that's not quite there yet. Larger icons was mentioned a lot, uh, making sure there's different contrast. So the background being black and the words, you know, having 
white or you know contrasting colors just those sort of options one option someone else mentioned that I thought was good was just having different settings so like you know with her kids she doesn't need the chat or the reactions or all these different options in the bottom of zoom so if there's a way to just kind of limit those to be less just visually distracting that was just a few things that clients had mentioned those are all really good suggestions and I hope that the maker of telehealth platforms are like listening to this so that they get all of those suggestions <laughs> Can we send them out? Yeah. Yeah, we should. We should find a way. As you're saying this, I'm thinking this would make a really good like handout or something. And I know that you, are you still trying to get your paper published like in a journal? Is that still um, in the plans? I am. Fingers crossed. Okay. Yes. Fingers crossed. (laughs) um, Prayer circle, all that. Yes. Hopefully when it comes out, uh, we can find a way to get it some attention and, and make sure that, that people pick up on those recommendations. That would be really great. Yeah, I'm so interested whether research will come out of COVID. I think that for the next year or so, that's probably all you'll be seeing in journals is COVID-related <laughs> right. research. Um, so really the question is, when will people run out of things to say about the COVID experience and it starts to move on to something else? Were there any themes to the emotions or feelings that some of the practitioners were kind of experiencing since this was you know, you were doing this research really at the height um, of, of this pandemic and the switch to online learning and the beginning of all of these new, um, these new things, Zoom, telepractice, although telepractice has been around for a while, but, um, you know, this, this quick forced switch for everybody. Yeah, that's really how it felt, like this abrupt switch, and they weren't necessarily able to choose, like for the ones in the school system, it was whatever the school board had told them to do, right? So stressed, but also I think a big takeaway was they were really, really empathetic with their patients or, um, you know, the parents of the kids and how they were stressed too. And so I think their takeaway was really doing as much therapy, you know, occupational therapy sessions as the clients wanted. Um, Because I think the school board may have said, you know, do this many sessions or post this many things a week. And they were like, we'll do what can be done (laughs) during a pandemic. Um, and I think that's a great takeaway. Yeah. Were there any um, like differences in the type of treatment that they provided? Was it in terms of like reaching goals and things like that? Did they really have to just kind of meet the the client where they're at and see, you know, what they needed in terms of maybe mental health or just, you know, other things that maybe weren't typically the first priority? Yeah. Um, the mental health is a great point. That was especially mentioned for the OTs that worked with older adults that now maybe they were alone more um, or just were worried about their families and there's so much unknown. So that was definitely touched upon more. And then for a school system, they have to stick to the IEP, but doing that as much as possible, you know, within their means, I guess, with COVID. So Amy, I would really love to talk more about the experience of actually working on the project, kind of give us a behind the scenes glimpse into what it was like. Um, how much research experience did you have prior to doing this study? So research prep, I guess, you know, learning about the basics, um, and the, you know, terms and how, how to do research, um, the research one, two, and three classes. And I had some research courses in undergrad, but actually doing research very little, um, you know, I was an RA for one summer, but yeah. Just kind of jumped into it, I guess, for this. 
which is amazing. So, um, so now our listeners know that this perspective is coming from a, a novice researcher. Researcher, I love how excited you were to just finally do a project. Can you tell us a little bit about how you prepared to do the interviews? I feel like for some people who are working on a qualitative study, that can be a little bit of a stress point. They don't know what questions to ask. They get nervous about the format. Tell us how you approached it. It was really helpful that I was able to brainstorm the questions with a practicing OT who I later interviewed. Um, So some of the questions that she hoped to get answered, I was able to shape those into interview questions. And then I was kind of told about six to eight. Um, And since it was semi-structured, you know, those are kind of baseline. And then you just kind of come conversate from there. And I talked about them with friends or classmates. Yeah. And then they had to get IRB approval. What was the biggest challenge that you faced while working on this project and how did you overcome it? Hmm. (laughs) There was a few. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was the summer 2020, right? There was a lot going on at that time. (laughs) I mean, a big challenge was starting it and trying to complete a project in three months. Um, And so it takes some time to get IRB approval, which is like an overarching board that before you can interview any sort of quote human subjects, you need to make sure that everything will be in place. And before you can conduct anything, they have to give it A-OK. You have to send it to them. They say, you need to capitalize this letter and then you have to do that. And then so back and forth with them for a few weeks before I could even start. It took a bit of time coordinating interviews. Um, like one week I'd have none. And then the next week I could have like three in one day. So that was kind of hard, but yeah, I don't know, biggest challenge. I think really the time frame just try to do it all in one summer. <laughs> um, but to overcome that, I guess, just knowing that these projects, especially when with the goal, like end goal to publish it, you're going to do the, you know, check off, you're going to do all the required hours during the summer, but it's going to be a continuing project if you aim to like publish it or present it at some place. Yeah, they sometimes the ADEs will go well past graduation. If you're planning yeah. to, to publish, you just, and your, your mentor keeps working with you. The whole time, pretty much. The OT faculty are just amazing because not only are they working with our current students, then they're also still often working with past mm-hmm. students to get these um, projects published. So they're amazing, as we know. Mm-hmm. As are our librarians who I Zoomed reaching out, like, how do I APA? How do I do these things over Zoom since I couldn't walk into your offices? They were my favorite Zoom calls. Um, I will be honest, Amy, when I was brainstorming people to interview, I was like, Amy has to say yes. I helped her so much on this project. She can't turn me down. Just kidding, listeners. No one was coerced into coming on to our show. This paper does get published. I think Amanda gets an acknowledgement at the end. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm so honored. I was just going to say, um, it sounds like you had a really great experience working um, with the library resources and working with your mentor. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of those resources that you used uh, for this project and you know what the most helpful ones were. Yeah, another resource that I haven't mentioned yet was also my classmates because we're sort of put into mentor groups. So each like each mentor has about, I don't know, three or four mentees. And so I had two other classmates that had the same mentor who we really um, bounced off ideas and questions, um, helped to review each other's papers. So that was a huge support. And plus, you know, we were all going through the same going through the same thing of trying to do a research project over the summer in three months. So that was really nice to have each other's backs during that. It's like a built-in support group. Mm-hmm. Um, so you keep mentioning mentioning your mentor. 
I would love to hear about the experience of working with her and feel free to tell us who she is. How did she best support you throughout this process? So my mentor was Kim Shesso. And so she's actually now at a different um, school. So it was her last mentor group, but she was still helpful throughout. Um, And since she did move across the country, we were still able to Zoom, you know, since we weren't meeting in person regardless because of COVID. So phone calls, FaceTimes. Zooms, all that. I would also really love to hear about the process of participant recruitment because it can be difficult for any study type, but especially this was a very specific study that you were doing um, and specifically needed to take up people's time. So how did you approach recruiting those participants to interview? So yeah, luckily I had already connected with someone at Perkins. And so she was able to reach out to quite a few of her colleagues Um, and see if any of them would like to participate. And then Kim had sent out an email to uh, basically her colleagues on this low vision specialist email chain, I believe, um, seeing who would be able to participate because she's part of the Mass Association of the Blind and Visually Impaired, or MABV, primarily from those two. Once you got in touch with people, how did you arrange the interviews? Whenever they were available. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Thankfully, because it was over Zoom, like if I had someone that was located in Worcester and then someone located on the other side of the country, like I was able to Zoom them an hour back to back, which is awesome. There's downfalls to Zoom interviews, obviously, but that was a really convenient part too. Yeah, I feel like research interviews are awkward no matter how you try to do them. Like it's such an invasive thing to to investigate someone's life like I'm doing right now. Uh- <laughs> So there's no way around that. And I think it's just something that comes with experience. Maybe it's just that it starts to feel less awkward because you do it so much more, which I think is true of, you know, everything that we're learning how to do for the first time. Oh gosh, I was so nervous in the first ones. And then, yeah, like you said, they they got easier. So during this process of doing a qualitative research project, do you feel like your perception of qualitative research changed at all? Uh, Maybe what you you thought it was going to be like based on what you learned and what it was actually like? Yeah, I think there already is that question. Some people tend to look down on qualitative, right? Because it's people's people's thoughts and not hardcore like um, numbers or um, evidence, right? But I think it's especially during COVID um, so useful because you get to hear people's stories, you know, their lived experiences during this. And I think that was really what was necessary and their takeaways because these therapists were the ones working. And so, you know, when you think about well, how can we improve the accessibility of Zoom, for example? Well, and I feel like we should ask people that have lived through it and like saw the challenges. I don't know if my perception changed because I already kind of thought it was in- like important, um, but maybe it was heightened. Like I really see the um, importance in it now. It sounds like you've had a really positive experience, um, you know, working on this project and learning about the research process. Do you plan uh, to do more research after you graduate? I hope to um, in some way or another. Of course, once I graduate, I want to get into practicing, but maybe down the line. So in a completely different standpoint, I have um, a lot of interest in doing working like internationally and like in low income countries. So if I can somehow do research there, um, that would be amazing too. What are some of the ways that the results from this study have impacted or will impact your practice in the future? So I think the big takeaway is whether or not insurance companies will approve the use of telehealth and how often. Um, I'm hoping that 
it allows for it because you know we see that it's useful in some capacity. But I think the takeaway from my specific study is that the person's you know condition or disability and the context, like whether in person or telehealth, might not be the most important factors, but also the emotional factors, the stress, you know, in a pandemic, but also their access and resources were huge takeaways. And so it was the stress levels, access slash like resources they had um, available and caregiver or parent support. So like those being the three takeaways, even though the context was completely switched. So I think that was a really important takeaway when I go into practice. Amy, were there any fun parts to doing your ADE? Like when did you have fun what do other OTD students have to look forward to? I mean, the interviews are fun. That was different. I took like nine different practicing um, clinicians and like hear their takeaways from all this. Do feel really lucky that I was good friends with um, the mentees I was matched, like paired with and working together. It was good and bad doing this from home. Um, <laughs> so that depends on the person. The IRB is not fun, but... Yes, IRBs are awful they're just like what uh, now I can't think of the phrase but oh they're a necessary evil like yeah yeah. I mean I think the fun is seeing it all come together like I definitely celebrated when there was a final project and like it was really amazing to look back and be like wow I like put something together in just three months and seeing how far we came from research one two and three was a good good feeling do you have any advice for uh, the current OTD students um, f- who will eventually be doing their ADs? Being flexible was the biggest part and also not being too hard on yourself. Like everyone realizes, especially at this point, we're into 2021, like this is all hard, but you know, you can do it. It'll get done. Biggest tip of advice was for ADE at least, because there seems like so much to do. And then you know, come Friday, you're like, what did I get done this week? setting little bullet points or goals for things to do each day goals for each day but then goals for the overall for the week so that you can actually have tangible things come end of the week of what got done something this uh project and this conversation has really reminded me of is the be my eyes app have you heard of that yes I, I don't love it. it. I don't know how I haven't downloaded it. Do you have it's it? It's great. I do. I downloaded it. Um, I saw it on Twitter like a few months ago and downloaded it. And it's really great because the ratio of like volunteers to users on the app, like it's really great. So the calls are answered like very quickly. There's a huge, there's a lot of volunteers. Um, so that's great. And I've gotten a few calls and basically it's just uh, for anyone that doesn't know what it is, it's like a, an app you can download and people that are low vision, it will instantly connect them with a volunteer on the other line and they can just point their camera at whatever they need help seeing. So whether it's like putting away groceries or just like checking, you know, um, bills or whatever, things like that, they're able, you can just kind of help them out in the moment and then the call ends and it's very simple. It's amazing what apps, like just the power of technology sometimes, something so simple like that. So cool. Amy, are there any other resources that you would recommend for people who would like to learn more about any of the topics in your study, whether that's low vision or telehealth, um, whatever you suggest, we will put in the show notes for people to be able to get to. The organization that I interviewed quite a few OTs from, is called the Mass Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. They are a great organization in Mass, um, and the Mass Commission for the Blind um, has a lot of great resources too. I did my level one field work with MAVV. So it was really cool in the home setting. 
And do you think you'd like to keep working with the low vision population when you're licensed? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure it'll come up, you know, so again, whether it's older adults or brain injury or whatever the case may be, um, it, I think it's more prevalent than I don't, like, I don't think I have to go into a specific setting to come across it. Well, thank you, Amy, for telling us about your amazing experience. And uh, we wish you all the best with getting your paper published. Thank you so much. It was great to chat with you all again. Thank you so much, Amy. And this is great timing because I think you are all freezing. So, <laughs> oh no. What a great interview. Yes, as telehealth has become a permanent part of service delivery for so many professionals across healthcare and beyond, this research is important for creating more accessible service delivery for all. Indeed. Additionally, Amy needed more time to decide what song she wanted to add to the playlist. You can hear her contributions by going to the playlist on Spotify or YouTube using the links in the show notes. Her roommates helped her out and they sent us an eclectic list of songs. We hope you enjoyed learning about Amy's project and be sure to check out the show notes for links to Amy's published work and important resources related to teletherapy, OT, and working with patients with visual impairments. And thank you listener for joining us for this episode of evidence-based IHP. There are many more episodes to come in season one. Make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any. Ask us your question, send us your feedback, or pitch an episode by emailing us at podcasts at mghihp.edu. Evidence-Based IHP is presented by the Janice P. Bellick Library at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. It is hosted by Amanda Tarbett and Rachel Norton. Our incredible executive producer is Selena Craig. We'd like to say a special thanks to George Sanchez de Lozada and MGH IHP's Office of Information Technology for their technical and financial support of this project. Check the show notes for links to learn more about MGH IHP and follow us on social media.